This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Rick Prado. So this man had a legendary 24-year career in the United States Central Intelligence Agency. His career actually spanned two of the most important eras in the history of intelligence, and that's the Cold War and the age of terrorism. He's right in the thick of all of that. So Prado received a CIA Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal. That's the highest award given upon retirement from that community. And also the George H.W. Bush Award for Excellence in Counterterrorism, among other awards. So he is a paramilitary counterterrorism and special clandestine operations specialist and expert. And he served as an operations officer in six overseas posts. He's literally served all over the planet. Also, when he left public service, Prado worked as an executive at a private military contractor where he built and specialized operations team is really awesome. He talks about it. And also, he is currently the co-owner of Camp X Training, where he continues his service training and supporting the spec ops community, teaching advanced special operations and techniques, among other essential skills. But he's also the author of a book, and this is how he got on my radar. The book is called Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. And so whenever this book was pitched to me, I was like, this is kind of unique. I'd never knowingly talked to somebody from the CIA and that type of thing. Certainly not someone that had a legendary career. But the thing that makes this book even more incredible is the fact that he is actually the first covert operator of of any major rank to pin a fully operational memoir in the history of the CIA, right? So just kind of give you a little bit of context. He retired as the equivalent of a two-star general in the military. So that's, that's what he was at the CIA. This book has so much detail and it's really impossible to go over uh, all of that detail here in this show, but we do get into the fact that he grew up in Cuba. So he grew up in Cuba during the Castro revolution. Like his parents kind of smuggled him out of the country and then they reunited in the United States. So we get into a lot of that and kind of how his family had a deep and abiding respect for the United States of America and felt like we got to do something to honor this. Like we have a debt to this country. And so he goes into the military and then he ends up at the CIA. We go into all that. And then he was right in the middle of the Iran Contra scandal. He was on the ground in Central America, kind of dealing with all of that for several years. We get into Osama bin Laden and the fact that the agency knew about him in the nineties and yet we didn't take him out and kind of what, what that's done for the country. And we get into all of that. We talk about his career spanning the cold war and the age of terrorism and Islamic fundamentalist terrorism and all that ideologies. We talk about how he got out of the agency, what he misses about, of the agency, some misconceptions that people have about what spies are and what, what the intelligence community does and, you know, how he's able to write a book like this. But then we get into stuff that's outside the book, like his thoughts on, you know, our pullout from Afghanistan, what's currently happening with Ukraine, what happens when the United States is weak on the international stage with countries like Iran and China and North Korea and all those different things. Then we get into something that was crazy because several points in the book, he talks about sleeper cells in the United States. Essentially, known entities in the United States right now that we know want to kill dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of Americans. And we know these people, and yet we don't do anything about them. We talk about the crisis at the southern border. We talk about Latinos trending towards the Republican Party. But if you stick with us all the way to the end, I know it's a long intro, but if you stick with us all the way to the end, this guy's a man of faith. He's a Christ follower. And so I ask him, basically, how can you do that and, and, and do the job that you do? How can you be a Christian? And do the job that you do, a job that may require you to spill blood and to steal things and to lie and all those different things. He had a very interesting answer to that. So you're going to have to stick around to the end to get that answer. But guys, I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. This is a great, great interview. So without further ado, let's get into it. Rick Prado, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. 
Thank you for having me. It's a hey, real pleasure. Uh, th- this is a one that I've really been looking forward to because when this was pitched to me, I was like, I don't think I've ever knowingly talked to somebody that was in the CIA before. And so like, that's going to at least be a unique experience for, for me and the stuff that we're doing. But a lot of the stuff that we're going to be talking about today has to do with the book that you wrote called Black Ops. And um, we're going to really talk about a lot of things from this book. It's a very unique thing that you did that. And we'll wait till the end to kind of talk about, you know, why you're one of the first people of your ilk to really do that. But as I gleaned from the book, you grew up in Cuba. And so uh, there's not a whole lot of people that that I know personally that have done that. I know a handful, but it was interesting, the timing. You were just a child in Cuba during the Castro revolution. And so even people that grew up in Cuba, maybe they were there after the revolution or something like that. So as a generic place to start, let's just start there. What do you remember about that time growing up in Cuba and kind of what was going on there with all the consternation with the revolution? You know, um, my father, who lived with me for the last five years of his life, was amazed at how much I remember uh, about those times. And I, I explained to him, I said, Dad, you got to understand these were unforgettable times. It's not like I went to kindergarten or I went to, I don't remember any of that crap. But, you know, we, um, we actually, uh, the, we lived in the, uh, I'm sorry, we lived just below the Escambray Mountains, uh, which is where Che Guevara had his uh, domain with the, with the rebels. So my town, being a fairly sized town, but at the, at the foothills, uh, was often raided. So I literally saw my first firefight outside my window two feet away um, when, I was, when I was seven years old. Uh, it was my first exposure to the violence of, of, of uh, combat. Um, there was a guy underneath the window that I didn't see when I was, I was looking mesmerized. And he let off two complete, you know, uh, magazines of automatic weapon and I'm just standing there. But what really, really captures and what is tattooed in my brain is what happened shortly after Castro took over. Um, First of all, you know, he was suspected of being a socialist. Yeah. Well, people don't understand often that socialism is just a mask for communism to wear. Obviously. Yeah. He took that mask off almost immediately. So you figure within six months after taking power, he started, well, the prosecu- the, the persecution started immediately. Anybody from the opposition, anybody who had former links to Batista, um, the confiscation of, of property was across the board. My dad owned a small coffee roasting company. During the season, he employed 10 guys. So he was not exactly your capitalist. Right. And that was taken over. So just seeing all of a sudden I'm wearing a little uniform. Uh, our churches are shut, they shut down. Our, our priests are not, we're not allowed to go to church. Uh, they, they were praying at school for Castro, not to God, mm-hmm. pray to Castro. So um, we are now wearing these little military like uniforms. Um, and at the age of nine, because when he took over, I was, uh, I was just about eight, eight years old, nine years old. Uh, I would, me and my class would have to go out on the field and teach the campesinos how to read and write. Now you tell me how a nine-year-old is going to teach anybody, especially a campesino, how to read and write. Right. So um, the the irony of it was, it was was just ridiculous. Um, But the persecutions and and the abuses were so evident. And when my dad decided that we didn't, you know, he said, we, we, we're leaving. We, we, we got to get out of this. I'm an only child. And he didn't want his only child to uh, grow under communism. So we moved to Havana to do the process. And the first day that we drove into Havana, 
I looked to my right. I was in the backseat of my dad's 57 Pontiac. And there were three men hanging from trees and telephone poles. Yeah. And all of them had signs hanging from their necks that said counter-revolutionaries. Uh, my poor mom uh, tried, tried to jump over the back seat to block my vision, but that's, believe me, that's, uh, that's inked in here. Um, that further exacerbated, you know, the, the need to get out. My, my parents could not get out initially um, because they were still divvying up their, their modest properties back home. That's usually the way it worked. So my dad was able to find uh, the program called Peter Pan. And Peter Pan was a program um, created by the Catholic Church to get kids out of Cuba whose parents could not leave. They wanted to leave with you. <clears throat> so at, at, the, uh, at the age of 10, um, being the little man of the house, my dad was very good about always uh, teaching me about, you know, what does a man do? What does a man stand for? God, country, family, that kind of stuff. And uh, takes me to the airport to, um, to go on a plane by myself to, to Cuba. And, and I will tell you, um, I will never forget that moment because my mom was crying. I mean, she was really, really crying. And my dad says, I don't remember saying it, but my dad says that I told her, if you don't stop crying, I'm not going. And he told me that, mm. you know, seven years ago before he passed. And uh, there was this uh, glass divider. They call it the, the, the fishbowl, la pecera. Because once you got past there, the parents had to stay behind. And I remember turning around. I had a little dark suit on and tied. I remember turning around and watching my mom bawling and my dad biting his lip. Yeah. I mean, just when I read that part of the story, because obviously you're flying to the United States alone and we'll get more into that here in a second. But at that age, you had to have known there was something that was broken because some people grow up like if you if you were born in North Korea, it's like that's just that's your world. You don't really know that there's something different than that plight and that level of suffering, especially whenever you live in a Western country or do something like that. But before we get into your, your transition to the United States and, and how that kind of affected your family and all that, I want to know what you think growing up during the revolution. And you said it perfectly. Socialism is just the pretty mask. Uh, that That's the candy. That's the honey that attracts idiots. Uh, that ends up getting them stuck in communism. But what do you think about when, you know, then President Barack Obama went to Cuba and made nice with the Castros going to a baseball game and U.S. college students worshiping guys like Che Guevara and wearing his shirt and getting his tattoo of his face on their forearm and just Americans being attracted to communism or Marxism or socialism overall. Like, I, I know that Cubans, especially Cuban Americans, have a tremendous opinion about that because you've actually seen it. You're not just reading about it in textbooks uh, from a time gone by. But what do you think about that? Well, you know, part of the problem that we have in this country, um, we have taken God out of everything. Um, we have taken uh, loyalty to country out of everything. But the worst is the fact that we, as Americans, do not know how good we have it in this country. We have nothing to compare it with. When my oldest son was like 11, well, actually nine or 10, when we came back from one of our overseas tours, it was the first time he was going to go to school in the United States. And I remember that when we went to church that Sunday morning, I took the envelope and passed it to my oldest son. And he says, what's this for? I go, Alex, you're the oldest. You've always gotten the envelope. This is for poor people. He looks at me and says, there's no poor people here. I lived in Northern Virginia. Yeah. Here you have a kid 
that knows that when we walked out of church in the Philippines or in, or, or in, in Latin American countries, but especially in the Philippines, there were mothers lined up that were amputees with defective kids. And my wife would literally have a bag full of clothing and food and stuff like that when we came out of church and she would, she would pass that out. So we don't know, we don't have anything to compare it with. And, and it scares me. Uh, I'm 71 years old. So, you know, if they're going to come after me, bring three, cause I'm taking two of them with me. Right. Right. But the bottom line is I do have sons. Both my sons are military uh, in service. Uh, and, and my daughter is a, is a school teacher. So they're all in service and I have grandkids and I worry about this tendency to go so far left. I mean, there's always been a rightish and a leftist in, in, in this country, but this is very radical and, I, and it really scares um, my whole family. Well, that's the one thing that I, that I feel like, and, and a lot of people said this maybe about every generation, but it's like every generation of kids think the world started when they were born. And it's like everything that happened back then was just kind of back then. And there's nothing we can learn from it. And so that's the thing for, for me now. I have two kids below the age of two right now. And I'm thinking about what type of a country am I going to raise them up in? And I was just thinking about the 4th of July here recently. Like, yes, there's hot dogs and baseball and, and apple pie and all that stuff. But I want to make sure my kids are getting a tremendously accurate representation and historical understanding of the United States of America in comparison to the rest of the world, because most of these kids don't have the foggiest idea what that was like. And, and neither did you when you came to the U.S. So let's kind of go back there. You come to the U.S. alone. You're part of this uh, this program that kind of gets you out of the plight of what's going on in Cuba. But you do eventually reunite with your family. So take us back through that. So, yeah, you know, it's funny as, 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 as well and clear as I remember getting into the fishbowl and seeing my parents um, when I turned around everything else is black. I have no recollection of getting on the aircraft, where in the aircraft I sat, when we landed, only when we deplaned and we were coming into the terminal in Miami and there was a priest with a sign. Um, that's the first thing that I remember from the, from the, from the fishbowl to that, everything else is, is blacked out. So my, my point is, you know, no matter how calm I looked, appeared on the outside because of my dad's tutoring, I was in shock. Yeah. I was literally in shock. And now that I've been through it in, in my, you know, more kinetic experiences, tunnel vision, auditory exclusion, mm -hmm. all the stuff that really happens. I had it at the age of 10 going on this flight. And so did 14,000 other Cuban kids, by the way, that's how, how many people came out through the Catholic church. <clears throat> so um, we went to Florida city, which was one of the three camps. So they were in South, in South Florida. And two weeks later, I was sent to a Catholic orphanage in Pueblo, Colorado. And, and of course, you know, that second time on a plane, now I'm on, in a big plane and going to a place where when we land, there's actually mountains that are snow capped, um, yeah. landed in Denver and, and drove down to, uh, to Pueblo. And, and that, I remember that very clearly. And then getting to the orphanage, the orphanage had a lot of good uh, and, and some inherent bad. Um, you know, I, I visited the orphanage a few years ago. Or what was the orphanage? Now it's a public home kind of stuff. And a lot of the people that came out when I started talking with, to them were asking me, well, what was the treatment like? I hear that the treatment here was awful. That they, I said, nothing could be further from the truth. I was never abused. I was never, you know, uh, the, the, the nuns were strict. I mean, you have to have, when you have hundreds of kids of four or five different races, cultures, and creeds, all orphans in a con confined space, um, you know, discipline is a must. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. So the, I, I had no complaints about the way we were treated at the orphanage. But what was rough was one, the isolation, because obviously, no matter what, I'm a, I'm a, I turned 11 at the orphanage. I'm an 11 year old, um, thousands of miles away from from his parents for the first time ever in his life. Right. So, but what was rough was there was a lot of fighting. There was a lot of violence because, again, you have a lot of frustrated kids. You have a lot of disappointed kids. You could hear some of the kids crying at night. Um, so that that was that was another stealing experience. And, you know, if, if you look at and you've read the book, but if you look at my life, I believe that God puts us certain paths in front of us. And if we have the conviction and the fortitude to follow the main path, he will help you along the way. He will mold you along the way. And because it's your path, it's never too hard because he will never give you anything too hard that you can't manage. So from the revolution to the travel to the United States, to the rough environment in, in, in the, uh, in the, in the uh, orphanage, these were all processes for my metal being forged. Right. Uh, I was blessed with the fact that my parents came out a little over eight months later. Um, there were kids there that their parents never came. Others that waited two or three years before their parents came. But, you know, where we were middle class in Cuba, you know, we had a television, a, a telephone, and my dad had a 57 Pontiac and a Jeep and a two and a half ton a truck for this business. And all of a sudden, it's six of us living in a one-bedroom efficiency in a real bad part of town. It was my aunt, my two cousins, who were two and five, um, my mom and dad and myself in, in, in an efficiency was probably the size of my office. Um, my dad working two jobs. He started loading trucks and mowing lawns. My mom in a sweatshop uh, for well over a decade, uh, sewing in, in, the, in Miami heat. Um, But you know what? My dad never complained. My dad never took a welfare check. Um, And soon thereafter, we started building the American dream. My dad worked two jobs for as long as I can remember. He was a carpenter. He was a craftsman, actually, not just a carpenter. He was a craftsman. And, uh, you know, a few years later, I think it was around 66 or so. uh, So three or four years after being in country, we, we bought a little house. My dad bought a little house in Hialeah for a whopping $12,000. And um, that was the beginning of the American dream. I think that's so awesome that you described it that way. And as I was reading through the book, there were a bunch of little quotes that I made sure to underline. And then they, there just kept being more and more of them. So these are all quotes from the book here. And we knew we were blessed to be in America. My dad never took a welfare check. As my parents battled their way up the economic ladder, they encountered that racism too. But, you know, you didn't define yourselves by that. Another quote here. They, your parents, became ardent patriots who never missed voting in an election. Also, we may have had things rough since coming to Florida, but this country gave us every opportunity to succeed. And the last one I'll read here is this. We were starting to live the American dream. You work hard. You get to enjoy the fruit of your labor. Now, I've got some breaking news for you, Rick. I've been reliably informed that if you are a POC in this country, a person of color, that the white supremacist system will not allow you to succeed. We will hold you down. Like, and somehow I'm a part of this cabal as well because I was born looking like this and you were born looking like that. And yet here you are coming to this country in the craziest of circumstances. You, you started at the bottom because that's where you had to start, but then y'all didn't lament it. 
like I don't get the sense that you and your mom and dad were all together complaining about your plight. I mean, you're an only child. Like it would have been very easy just to navel gaze and be like, oh, this this country hates us. The world hates us. God hates us, that type of thing. But y'all took the opportunity and ran with it. But that's not a common refrain right now. You know what I mean? Unfortunately, it isn't. And I, and I think it was probably, you know, in, in my era was a little bit more prominent. But, you know, even even to a child, freedom is palpable. Right. Um, the freedom of speech, the freedom of practicing your religion, the freedom of, of you know, when, when you have institutions telling you at school that if your parents say anything against the revolution, you have to report it. Hmm. They're going after that main fiber, which is the family, which is one of the problems we have here also, divided families. But absolutely, my dad, from the day he set foot in here, and as soon as he found a job, people would ask him, well, so, so when Castro falls, you're going to go to Cuba? He goes, nope. Because we're staying. He says, I, I want my son to grow up in this, because I don't know what that's going to become back in the island, uh, uh, you know, how many years it's going to be. He says, we're not going anywhere. And, and like you said, my dad and my mom never missed an election. We became residents in rec- the, the, the minimum allotted time. And the same thing with citizenship. It was around that time that I grew a conscience. This is where, as a teenager graduating from high school in 1970, uh, all of a sudden, it was one of these eureka moments that I went, I have a charmed life. Mm. I have a car. I have parents. I have food on the table. You know, I can do you know, pretty much what I want. And it's funny because a lot of people say, oh, poor Rick, he went through so much. It was my parents. Yeah. The people that really paid the price of my admission was my parents. So um, I did what any stupid 19 year old kid would do, um, even though my draft number was astronomical and my parents were celebrating that I was never going to be called. I literally enlisted in a special operations unit called pararescue out of the United States Air Force. And of course, my mom fainted. My dad wanted to smack me. It was a, it was a pretty dramatic afternoon in my house. But um, that was, it was a debt of honor. I honestly became aware that this country is the best in the world, but it, do, it doesn't come free. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got to do their part uh, in, in everybody, you know, everybody contributes in their own different way. We're all wired to, 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 to be, to do what we're supposed to do. Um, but for me, that was, that was very evident. And, um, I, I wanted to go to Vietnam. That was the main thing. I wanted to serve in Vietnam, um, to be able to say, I have tried to defend this country. Well, the, the interesting thing about that and, and, you know, spoiler alert, and guys, by the way, the, the book is going to be in the show notes. We're going to be skipping over so many incredible stories like that. We can't possibly make this like a 10 hour long podcast. So you're going to have to get it to check it out yourself. Don't worry. You will be able to find it easily in the show notes, but you did barely miss Vietnam, but even just to back up just a little bit, I just want to kind of say this because, and it's something I think I've said before, some of my favorite people on the planet are second generation American immigrants because they are, their parents know what it's like, even if they were too young mm-hmm. by the time they came here. But that's why a lot of these second generation uh, Im- American immigrants 
do so well in this country because they realize, look at all these opportunities and they don't buy into this, this narrative about their race or their gender or any of these other types of things like holding them down. And that's one thing for, for my sons is like, look, I'm Irish and Choctaw Indian. Like, so regardless of which way you look at uh, my people, we weren't the people that were buying people. We'll, We'll put it that way. Right. And so like, I don't want my sons to think just because of the neighborhood we live in or the, the community that we live in that somehow he grew up on third base. I want him to think that he's got to go up to bat with his head screwed on straight. And so I just love that attitude. But the, the other cool thing about you, you kind of skipped over this and you, you spent a lot of time on it in the book. You were a knucklehead when you were a teenager. I mean, you were, you were just like any other teenager, but the, and you did some kind of street life stuff, you know, living in Miami and, and did a little bit of crime and, and had some had some bad decisions that that you made and some bad luck that befell you. But you did make a decision at some point that's and that's maybe the conscience that you were talking about to where it's like, OK, my parents gave up everything to come here and they didn't do that. So I could come here and be a complete moron. And so I, I love that you kind of came there and you're like, okay, you found this sense of duty. And again, we're skipping over a lot of this because you're in the PJs. You did a lot of cool stuff with that, but eventually you were attracted to the CIA somehow. And so uh, again, you miss Vietnam, you know, uh, you kind of put some things in there, but I really like how you described it in the book. So talk about how you eventually found your way into the agency. Well, I, I uh, with the frustrations of not being able to go to Vietnam, you know, if you're just jumping and doing scuba and shooting every day, get, without a mission, it really gets old. Uh, so I, I applied for the agency in 74. And, and as you know, historically, they were not hiring, they were firing. That was the, right. the, the downfall of the agency for quite a while there. So I tried again, I think it was late 79, early 80. I was still in the reserves. I, I did eight years total between active and reserve. And uh, this time they, they said, hmm, you know, you are, oh, because what happened was as I was in the reserves, I went and started writing rescue in Miami Metro Dade mm-hmm. because as a pararescue man, I'm already an EMT too with, with experience. So they right. were just standing that up. So it was a, an easy fit. So when I applied again in 79 or 80, they see what I've been doing, they see my background. And they said, look, we could use combat medics um, for working with our special activities division. Of course, I didn't know what that was at the time. Right. Special activities center is called now. Um, but that is the special operations forces for the CIA. And it's it, they draft strictly from uh, Marine Raiders, Green Berets, SEALs. I was the first pair of rescuemen. But more have followed, and, and a lot of combat controllers have followed. So... The, the whole gamut is there, but that, that was special activities division. So I, I worked contract with them for a little bit. And, and then I realized that it wasn't um, that I was going to have a job, that it wasn't that I was going to be able to have a job. So, you know, I went back to the fire department and a few months later, I get a phone call from, uh, from the agency saying um, we have something for you. And my only question was, you know, is it long-term or is it short-term? And they said, it's long-term. And I said, I'm yours. Um, my, apparently what happened was Reagan had taken over. Uh, Iran had released the hostages. Gee, what a coincidence. Yeah. Um, Jimmy Carter couldn't do it, but here comes Reagan. And before he finishes swearing in, they're letting the guys out. Um, and Reagan draws a line in the sand that he's not going to let anybody cross, which is communism in my backyard. So he immediately tasked the agency for, to putting a covert action program. Covert action program is black ops, an operation that is not known outside of what you're doing. 
you're hiding the American hand. Um, and that's why they needed me, because at the time, SAD did not have a native Spanish speaking native. They have guys who spoke some Spanish, but native Spanish speaking that had paramilitary background that could pull this off. So they were, where's that? Remember that Cuban kid, PJ, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And they tracked me down and, and um, I, I, they called me on a Thursday. I was in the building on a Monday. Uh, two weeks later, I was setting foot in Honduras. Absolutely. And, and we'll get way more into that here in a second, because you're going to be able to give some context that a lot of folks, especially of some of the younger generation that didn't really know any of that stuff happened or was going on. But even before we get there, I know that when you initially got into the CIA, you had some preconceived notions about what the CIA was and what spies were and what agents were and what they did. And, you know, now we've got Jason Bourne and we've got, you know, at the time you're reading the novels about James Bond and you have all these different ideas. It wasn't exactly what you thought whenever you made your way into the CIA, but in a lot of ways, you felt like it was way better. It was a way better thing. It wasn't as Hollywood and it wasn't as sexy, but it was way better in your mind. So give us an idea as a civilian what it's actually like when you're an agent or, or a spy, if you will, at the CIA. And then we'll get into some of your specific mission work you did. OK, you know, we're, we're the only federal agents that we don't call our guys agents. Our okay. guys are called operations officers or case officers. Okay. And the FBI has agents. Agents to us are the people that we recruit that provide the information that we need to keep our country safe. So, uh, you know, there's two main things that the agency does for real. One is collection of intelligence. Now that is open source. That is through human, that is through signals and intelligence. So human sources, everything. Um, the second is covert action. And that is under the findings that only the president of the White House can sign that, uh, that dictates to the agency what they, uh, what they can and cannot do. Right. So a perfect example is 17 September, George Bush Jr. signed the lethal finding post 9-11. So what the bottom line on this, though, is that this is the reason that I ended up writing the book, because I don't want my grandkids and more importantly, the grandkids of some of my friends who are no longer here, mm -hmm. that, their that their memories would be tainted with the Jason Bourne. You know, uh, I often ask people, I say, name me two movies that portray the agency in, in a positive light. And there's silence. Usually there's one poor soul that says Jason Bourne. And I say, oh, a maniacal assassin with 17 personalities and was being chased by his own government by his own agency because they were doing covert programs that the Congress wasn't aware of. Mm. Right. Um, you know, we have 137 stars on our wall, Kyle, and we are a tiny operational compartment in, in the federal government in the United States. And almost a third of those 137 are post 9-11 and many of them I knew. So that was the catalyst for me. Uh, so the contrast between what I was reading in James Bond, I'm still waiting for my Austin Martin, yeah. you know, uh, and to what the realities were, you, you, you hit it spot on. It was better because what they cannot demonstrate in movies is the feeling of successfully contributing to your country, to your way of thinking, to your faith, to everything that you believe in. That is priceless. That is priceless. Uh, and, and I really resent the way that my agencies portrayed and more specifically, because I'm not into organizations, but the people, you know, the way that my, my folks are described is usually treacherous, double dealing, backstabbing, and nothing could be further from the truth. 
Uh, I work with some of the greatest people I've ever met on this earth. Many of them are still my inner circle friends. So the contrast between what I thought the agency was going to be like to what it was, wasn't a negative uh, reality in the contrary. Yeah, I think that's amazing to kind of look through because, again, I don't find myself to be a conspiracy theorist person. And when I watch Hollywood type stuff, even if it's military or kind of spy stuff, like I feel myself getting captivated by it. And I'm like, well, I had several points reading your book. I'm like, I wonder if he's swerving me. I wonder if he's still secretly working for the government and trying to say like, oh, we don't have these things. But it's kind of an Occam's razor thing. Like the, the explanation that is, you know, most probable is, or I guess the one that has the least amount of things dependent upon it. Like the, the simplest explanation is the one that's probably the most accurate, but to kind of go back now you're in the CIA, but almost immediately, Rick, you find yourself on the front lines of the cold war, right? I don't even know if y'all were calling it the cold war at that time, but eventually you were in the middle of the Iran Contra scandal and conflict. Now as a 35 year old, and a lot of people that are in my age range, we hear Iran Contra and we know that's a thing, but we have no idea no idea whatsoever what that was like because we assume that this happened in the Middle East, right? Just because of the name, right? But if you wouldn't mind, give us a little bit of a 30,000 foot overview of what the Iran-Contra scandal was and maybe even people that don't even know what the Cold War was and then give us an idea what you were doing on the ground to kind of fight against what was happening. Yeah, let's start with with the latter, with the being in the ground and, and being uh, uh, in, in real operations with uh, you know, on behalf of the U.S. government supporting, in this case, the Nicaraguan freedom fighters. These were in, in uh, late 70 something, 78, 79, the Sandinistas did a coup and with the help from Cuba and they became they announced themselves as, as communists. And they were all, you know, the, the pipeline was Soviet Union to Cuba, Cuba to Nicaragua, Nicaragua to Salvador and other of the surrounding countries in Latin America, in Central America. So the, the, uh, my job was for the first 14 months of that program, I was there for a little over three years. But for the first 14 months, I was the only CIA officer allowed in the camps. We had 10 camps. I would do two camps a week, Monday through Friday, leave you know, four o'clock in the morning on Monday, come back, you know, three o'clock in the morning on Saturday, yeah. um, sleeping in a jungle hammock and going from, from camp to camp, training them initially, not even training them, initially seeing what they needed, bringing in the logistics. Um, my first visits to the camps were humbling. These people were barely eating, you know, and, and malaria was, uh, you know, there were no medical, there was no, nothing that we provided everything for them. Mm. And we made a very viable uh, force out of it. And, that I, you know, as you know, in the book, there's three or four really cool adventures that, that, that are in there. But moving to the end of it is this covert action program was one of the first covert, successful covert action programs in the agency in at least a decade. Because, because we were able to provide the training and the logistics for the Contras, as they call them, the counter-revolutionaries, they forced the Sandinistas to go to a overseen democratic election, and they lost. Right. And that would have never happened if it had not been for the U.S. helping the freedom fighters. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that this, this was the, my favorite of, of, of my tours, because as, as a seven to through 10 year old living in Cuba, uh, I saw what it did to my first country. I, did, I saw what it did to my family. Here I am now, a couple of decades later, and I am 
the pointy end of the stick. Mm-hmm. I am helping these individuals cut off some of those tentacles that destroyed my country. And, and you know, when I would go at night, I would walk around with a cup of coffee and sit at a different campfire every night. And I would ask the people there, I would say, why are you here? Not one said, oh, well, I read Marx and Lenin. They burnt my church. Yeah. They raped my daughter. They forced conscripted my, my son. It, it was all personal. So for me, I never had a morning when I got up out of the jungle hammock that I went, oh, man, I'm still here. On the contrary, it was really fulfilling. Uh, and, and, and dealing with this kind of bravery and this kind of conviction was really refreshing. Yeah, what, what, then what happened was, uh, subsequently, I went to Costa Rica to run the Southern mm-hmm. Front. This is after going through spy school and everything else. Um, now I'm in a completely different theater with a completely different kind of people. The, the Southern Front of the Contras were former Sandinistas who had become dissolution with the regime. So there was always a big chasm between the North, the Mesquitos, and, and, and the South. Where in the north, the Hondurans helped us with all kinds of support and logistics. And, you know, obviously we, we reimbursed them for it, but they were really our partners in this. Costa Rica was actually trying to hunt us down. Mm. Uh, they were totally against what we were doing. So while I was there um, getting uh, one of the things that my job was coordinating airdrops to the southern part of Nicaragua, where the southern front resided. And this was a very... Uh, very basic, but well thought out process of, you know, marking signals and, and all this kind of stuff and timing. And all of a sudden I got a call from the, uh, the radio operator in our, in our command post that says, hey, uh, you need to come in. And what was, was this, uh, one of the resupply planes had been shot down by the Sandinistas. Hmm. Everybody on the plane died except one former Marine by the name of Passenfuss. Hassan Fuss, unfortunately, even though he was a former Marine, um, bypassed every rule of operations. First of all, he had stuff in his pockets, photographs, phone numbers, you name it, uh, of, of a lot of people who could compromise an incredible amount of things. The companies that were providing the, uh, the airdrops, all, all kinds of information. But the, the main thing that, that he didn't do was the standing orders were, if you are shot down or you have to do crash landing below this latitude, you move south and you let us know. So as soon as I found out, I turned on the heat. I had probably a thousand, you know, contras moving in, in a row towards that airplane kind of crash mm-hmm. because he's supposed to be walking south. So I told him, I bring this guy back. No, if there's anybody left, because we didn't know that it was him at the time, whoever survived that, that crash, bring them back. And if not bring the bodies. And of course, Hassan Fuss just stay there and, and um, in a hammock and he turned himself in and he had all kinds of compromising. Uh, and of course, the, then the politics kicks in like everything else, which is the first, the worst thing that can happen to the military or, or, or the intelligence communities to get be politicized as we have seen it become. Mm-hmm. So the politics took over and that's when it was uncovered that, you know, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan working through Wally North, um, had found different sourcing for providing for the Contras during dry years. And one of those deals was selling uh, weapons to, to Iran uh, and using that money for, for, uh, for supporting the Contras. Um, you know, that was a really big stink. And it cost a couple of agency folks that were my bosses their jobs. Uh, Joe Fernandez, for one. Jim, uh, there, were, there were several. And 
you know what? 20 years later, the agency called them back in and reinstituted all their stuff and gave them their retirement medals and everything yeah. else. And uh, you figure as a GS-12, I was in front of a grand jury. Not, not, as a, not as a subject, but as a, you know, uh, as a, you know, uh, somebody that could be interviewed. Right. And it was great because I could personally say what I wanted to say, what I saw, the poverty that I saw, the abuses that I saw, the criminality of that regime, the importance of us being there and the importance of us resupplying it. So that's, that's the uh, Iran-Contra background and, and ending. I appreciate that. I appreciate getting into all that detail. And again, guys, there's so much more detail in the book and you have a bunch of crazy stories and I'll tee you up for some more crazy stories later. I do want to get now into the the part of the book that I found the most interesting just because of kind of my age range. And that's, uh, you know, Osama bin Laden, 9-11 and kind of the beginning of this age of terrorism and the war on terror. And we'll get to 9-11 and your experience here in just a minute. But I want to go back to just Osama bin Laden or UBL because that was uh, one of the, the spellings for him back in the 90s. He was identified as a quote unquote bad guy in the mid nineties. He didn't pop on our radar on September the 11th, 2001, but we didn't take him out. And and you point out in the book that a lot of blood and a lot of anguish would have never happened had we done that. So, I mean, there's the people killed and wounded in the U.S. embassy attacks in Africa. There's the attack on the USS Cole. There's the people killed in the Pentagon, the Twin Towers and Flight 93, all on 9-11. There's all the soldiers that have been killed fighting in Afghanistan and and other places trying to, you know, weed out Al-Qaeda and AQI and and then ISIS and then all these other different things. There's the Arab Spring. There's a Syrian civil war. There's all these different things that happened because we didn't take this guy out in the mid-90s. And part of it, is because we were doing what we called kind of the, I guess, the moral play. We wanted to fight clean, right? There was all this nasty, dirty stuff that came to light and the agency just didn't have the stomach for the nasty stuff anymore, the political assassinations and all that. And so a guy that we knew was bad, a guy that we knew wanted to kill as many Americans as possible until his last dying breath, we just left him out there on the battlefield. So take us through why we didn't take him out to begin with. Well, I, I started the Bin Laden Task Force uh, in, in uh, late, um, um, uh, I'm, I'm having a senior moment here. Um, uh, was it 2002, 2003? No, it was, it, was, it was around 95, 96. Oh, okay, yeah, 95, the other one, right. It was, sorry, it was end of 1995 or real early in 1996. Mm-hmm. When I was called in by, by the, uh, the, the, the chief of ops at the CTC counterterrorist center and said, you know, we want you to be the deputy, the senior ops guy, but the deputy chief of station for this task force that we're building. And it, we're, we're chasing Osama bin Laden. And my, my answer was who? Yeah, I had, nobody, no, nobody had heard of him at the time. Fast forward six months, our files had been tenfold more robust than they were six months before, because now we had some really smart people. We had some of the best analysts that I've ever worked with in my life uh, that in targeting officers and all these great ideas coming in and then me trying to put the sanity, operational sanity into things. But in 1996, a very, very dear friend of mine and an SF legend, Billy Waugh, um, was in charge of uh, doing surveillance and counter surveillance in Khartoum, Sudan for the station, for the CIA station. And, and, and Billy um, used to walk and run around bin Laden's compound every single day. He had a safe house that we had procured 
in a higher building and he had these lenses that he could take these all these photographs. The first photographs that we ever got out of, of Bin Laden that were ours, not from the Saudis or from the papers, was taken, were taken by Billy Wall. And Billy Wall, to this day, has told me many times, as a Rick, you know, I got so close to him, I could have killed him with a pencil. He was in the white. He would drive his white Mercedes, sometimes without his bodyguards. He would go driving around because at the time, Khartoum was a terrorist hotel. Mm-hmm. You had every kind of terrorist. And that's where, again, Billy Wall found uh, the jackal, Carlos the jackal, uh, Elis Ramirez, the, the famous uh, terrorist. He found him. He made book on him. And we were able to turn him over to the French. But at that time, there's no doubt in our minds of two things. First, Bin Laden was bad. We had, you know, satellite overhead of the camps he was financing, the kind of training that were going on in these camps. It was all terroristic, you know, insurgency kind of training in the outskirts of, of, of Sudan, you know, out of, out of Khartoum. Um, so we knew that. The, all the source reporting from allied co- countries and unilateral from us was, this guy is bad. He is recruiting. He aims to really unite, you know, the, the effort against the Americans and, and, and of course, the Israelis are wrapped into that or we are wrapped into it. Um, so for that period, we we recommended several times necessarily kill him, but at least render him. Because we knew, I mean, Billy Waugh is, is, is a Green Beret legend, for God's sake. He, he looked at his security. He goes, OK, we could do this. We could do that. I mean, mm-hmm. his plans were flawless. So if we send in a Delta team or a, or a deaf group team in there, it, it would have not been a fair fight. I mean, it would have been, you know, we probably would have lost anybody. You know, uh, But you hit on something a little earlier that's one of my pet peeves that people mm-hmm. do not understand. And is that you cannot judge the morality of your enemy by your optic. The things that they are willing to do to us mm-hmm. is stuff that we can never contemplate. Right. And, and the story that, that I often tell is well, it happened in Iraq. There was a guy who had been cleared working in Iraq, you know, in the green zone forever. And all of a sudden he went in there and put a bomb, planted a bomb. Well, what they had done was they had taken his daughter, shot her, killed her right in front of his eyes. Then they took his son and they said, if you don't put this backpack down there, we're going to shoot your son. Now, I'm all God and country, and there ain't too many things that I wouldn't do for this country or for my family. But that's something that is inconceivable to me. Right, right. But as a professional, I have to understand that when I plan to attack that kind of enemy, I cannot go in there against a mixed martial artist, and I'm going to fight, you know, Queensberry rules. Right. So that's a very important point that you touched on. I wanted to add a little bit to that. Well, I appreciate that because there should be a moral high ground as you're operating as a country. Because look at the difference right now with what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. That the part of the reason why we're having this backlash as a as a world as we watch this is because it's unfathomable to us in in the year you know 2022 to see some of the atrocities that we're seeing. But also we live in somewhat of a post Christian culture. A lot of people don't aren't believers in any type of higher power. They thought we had quote unquote evolved past doing these horrible things to each other or countries invading one another. But again, you know, that that's maybe a discussion for another day, but kind of getting back into the Osama bin Laden stuff. So you're actually at Langley. I believe, I believe I have that right. When nine 11 happens. So you're, you're all kind of crowded around a television after the first plane hits. And then it's like, you know, you're thinking it's a, it's a little passenger plane or something like that. 
but then you watch the second plane hit and you know that you're under attack. And so I want you to take us through that, but I do want to read this quote because this was almost immediate, but this may be my favorite quote from the entire book. I'll read it to you here. Something happened inside me that moment, like tumbling a lock, like tumblers of a lock falling into place. What happened, what opened was every fiber of hate, fury, and vengeance I had ever felt. It poured out of my heart like blood from an open wound, pain racked and agonizing. I stood there feeling it course through me, watching the deaths unfold in front of us. I trembled from its power. That was a very visceral, like I, I could almost like taste your anger as I was reading that part of the book. And I, and sorry, I didn't do the greatest job of, of quoting it. I should have read it more before I said it out loud, but that's how a lot of us feel. That's how I felt as, you know, a young kid in, in ninth grade feeling, seeing what was happening, seeing the lines of people trying to get gas. And my mom worked at, at Fort Sill, which is largest artillery base in the country at the time there in Oklahoma. And we're, we're thinking maybe Fort Sill's going to be targeted. And like, I remember that crazy time. And I also remember that anger I feel every September the 11th when I watch documentaries on History Channel or Nat Geo or something like that. And I, I force myself to watch it and to listen to the people on the planes desperately calling their loved ones to the people deciding, am I going to burn alive or am I going to jump to my death given that impossible, impossible choice? But I was a ninth grader. I had nothing that I could possibly do to affect, you know, a vengeance on, on that situation or to try to make it right. But you did. You were standing in Langley at that exact moment. So take us through that moment and what you and your team felt and saw and then kind of how you decided thereafter and how y'all were going to fight against this terrorism that we were seeing. Oh, yeah. I was uh, I was the front of the building you know, of our office's space there waiting for Kofor Black, who was my boss and to this day, a dear friend um to get to go to a meeting and when the first plane hit second plane hits the first thing that i did is i turned to the chief of staff and i said look i want a cable out to every single station in the world watch your six and start finding out who is behind this all resources are to be focused on this so um then everything is else is a blur i mean you know uh, yes i was chief of operations so i you know i had Three, four hundred people there that, that, that were all part of, of our teams, but we're divided into groups and branches and everybody has their own expertise and their own chain of authorities that they know how high they can take decisions or suggestions before you have to raise them forward. So uh, it was it was mad briefing by everybody. We've heard this. We heard that uh, often overwhelming because there was just so much stuff at us. Um, but I have to say that just before 9-11, and I'm talking about probably a couple of months, but definitely a month before 9-11, we knew something was coming. We knew something was coming. Uh, the chatter was there initially, all kinds of traffic, all kinds of keywords, uh, things that we knew that had certain specific meanings, all these things, but the, the who, the what, and the where were not easily discovered. And, you know, again, from the movies, when you watch the movies, at the end, you know, they can figure out exactly how everything is. It's a puzzle that comes perfectly together. And in real life, it's a puzzle, all right, but you only have about a third of the pieces. Mm. And, and that was our frustration that we had, we knew, especially when towards, when you got closer to 9-11, all of a sudden the, the communications died down. Some of the people we were surveilling worldwide disappeared. You know, that's a clue. They're, they're, something is brewing and it's imminent. So um, the, the jolt was, was, was tremendous to all of us and, and everybody took it very personal. And, and as you know, there's several stories in the book of, of you know, pregnant women refusing to leave, 
you know, CIA headquarters, which we were evacuated. The whole building was evacuated because mm-hmm. that, that, that flight that, uh, that uh, the, the, the heroes knocked into uh, Pennsylvania, whatever it was, a lot of people thought they were coming to the agency. They hit yeah. the Pentagon, they hit the, they hit the economic, they hit the military, makes more sense to hit the agency. So we, you know, we don't know. Um, and this lady literally stayed behind eight months pregnant trying to find out what the heck was going on. Yeah. And uh, so intelligence is, is not, it's not what is played in the movies. Uh, we uh, very quickly, you know, of course, in coordination with the NSC and, and, and the white house, uh, we knew that now that it was bin Laden, that we had to do something about it. And we knew that his belly button was the Taliban. Uh, and of course, Al Qaeda, which means the base. And, and that's, that's a point to be made, you know, what made Bin Laden unique and why it would have been so great to pull him, you know, to, to neutralize him at that time you mentioned, was that he became the godfather of terrorism. Mm-hmm. He breached, you know, like the mafia went and started working with the Jews and all this kind of stuff. He did the same thing. He started working with Hamas, started working with Hezbollah, mm-hmm. providing information, providing all kinds of resources. So here, here is a guy that was, you know, created from from day one to, to lead this brotherhood that that uh, was that, that hurt us on 9-11. So the first boots in the ground in Afghanistan were my guys. These were guys from Special Activities Division and guys from the Counterterrorist Center. Um, when the first Green Beret ODA team came in, it was our guys vectoring him into place. Mm. So our guys have been there on the ground. And um, the rest is kind of history. I mean, there's a couple of examples of uh, me doing uh, one of those uh, drone authorized uh, shots and all this kind of stuff. We, you know, we were really hurting him in, in, uh, in the theater. And it, it was a war that we could have won if we would have just stuck with it, um, turned some things around there. I feel like I hate that quote that you just ended with, and not because you said it, because that's a reality, because we lose the political stomach for these things or, or the, the generalized uh, electorate gets bored with some sort of a conflict, you know, and, and we'll get into this a little bit. So I don't want to get uh, the car too ahead of the horse. But this idea that, oh, we're in all these endless wars, we need to pull our, our troops out. It's like. There are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of troops stationed around the globe. They're in Germany. They're in Japan. I know World War II is over, but we still have troops there. We still have a presence there. We're not at war with those countries. We're not fighting Nazis in Germany. We're not you know, fighting against imperialist Japan. We have a presence there, though. But I hate that that's kind of how, how we get to. And for you, Rick, you're in a very unique position because in your career, this spanned the Cold War all the way through the age of terrorism. Right. So that's a, a fairly unique you know, set of circumstances for you because you were in Central and South America. You were in Korea. You're in the Philippines. And we had to skip over all that just in interest of time today. You're also in the Middle East. You're in places that you couldn't even name. Right. In the book, you called one place uh, Shangri-La. Like you just had to you couldn't exactly tell it. But if with through context clues, you can kind of guess, you know, uh, what country that was in Africa. But I guess from your perspective. Which do you consider between the Cold War and let's use the age of terrorism between those two things, which would you have considered to be the biggest threat when they were at their peak? And then I guess now, like what is kind of the biggest threat? Because there's kind of a looming Cold War, if, if you will, with with a country like China, but then there's also Iran and North Korea and all that. So is it terrorism? Islamic fundamentalist terrorism that it was and is the biggest threat? Is it communism? Like just just take me into wherever you want to go. 
Yeah, you know, that's an excellent question. And uh, it, there is an answer for it. Uh, yes, the Cold War, um, which was in, in many cases, by my experience, is not as cold as people make it out to be because, mm. you know, I got I almost got spoke two or three times. <laughs> yeah, it seemed pretty hot for you. Yeah. So, you know, and I'm, I'm not alone. I mean, I, I was with my peers. I was with my with my colleagues. So the, the fallacy is that when terrorism emerged, OK, in, in you know, in, in started with, let's say, the coal and the bombings that, the, of the two of the uh, of our two embassies in Africa and all this kind of stuff. We describe that as a flashbang that gets everybody's attention into terrorism and that we the fallacy is that we stop chasing the Russians and chasing the Chinese. Nothing could be further than the truth. The real difference is, let me put it in medical terms, terrorism is like getting shot. Communism is like contracting cancer. Mm. When you're shot, if you don't self-help, put a tourniquet on, whatever it is, you're going to die. Now, with cancer, you, it's a process of investigation, of treatment, of whatever. Um, so we never took our eye off of the, and I, when I say we, we're talking about the community, not just, just, not just CIA, uh, of, of the, the terrorism. But admittedly, we all have limited resources, both financial and personnel. And if, we, if, if terrorism wasn't around, communism probably wouldn't have been either. But one you know, fed the other. Yeah, I think uh, it's an important thing. It, I guess there's all, also this mindset in America that we can't fight two wars at the same time. And I don't, I don't always mean literal wars. It's like people are like, well, if we're fighting against terrorism, well, what about China? It's like, dumb, dumb, we can do both. Like we can focus on, you know, both of these things all at the same time. But to kind of get back to the the crescendo, or I guess the end of your of your CIA career, you didn't exactly have the send off that that you would have wanted with your agency career. Uh, and if you'd like to tell that story, you can about yeah the decision that you made to ultimately leave the agency, which wasn't exactly your decision, but it was all at the same time. So you did end up retiring. But I guess if you want to tell us that story, tell that story as well. But I'm really curious about what you missed the most. About, about the agency, because what's clear about your book, about reading Black Ops, is that you're a kinetic guy and you like the action, right? Like, you know, you get scared just like anybody else, but you use that fear to propel you to do things that other people would just basically freeze up and not be able to do anything. So take us through how, how you ended your career and kind of how you look back on it. Well, let, let me address the very first part of what you said, which right. is, um, you know, the, the, we can't fight two wars and all that yeah. kind of stuff. <laughs> And I'm, I'm, I'm an intelligence officer. I don't do politics, so I'm not going to be naming names of current anything. So let's do a little history here. What happened during Carter years? Afghanistan, the Iran, the, uh, the Iran hostage crisis, Panama Canal. When the world sees weak leadership in the United States, they're predators. Guess what they're going to do? They're going to try to eat you. Yeah. You know, we give a lot of credit to, to Ronald Reagan for, you know, breaking down the Soviet Union the first time. But, you know, he had Margaret Thatcher and he had John Paul, uh, Paul II. Yeah. And what does any president here have as an ally? So my point is, there's, there's, a, there's a Roman general's quote that says, if you want peace, prepare for war. Right. Anybody who, again, looks at the morality of our enemy by our morality is, is, is being fooled. They are always looking. Anybody who thinks that we haven't been hit in the United States, 
because they've given up on us is completely wrong. They haven't hit us because we haven't let them. Right. We've been able to neutralize a lot of these things. The, the, the reason I left the agency was because uh, right after 9-11, um, I, again, I'm not, a, I'm not a desk guy. And here I am spending, you know, six and a half days a week, 12 hour days in, in, in behind a desk. And I, I, I always knew that I was a better uh, operator than I was leader. I mean, I'm a decent leader. I got, you know, I, I did pretty well. But my, my, my heart is leading people in the actual operations, not going through all the machinations that doesn't appeal to me. So I, in a conversation with Kofor, I said, boss, we're doing a hell of a good job killing these bad guys in, in Afghanistan. But, you know, here's the problem. That's not where the leaderships are. That's not where the real targets are. They are worldwide and we are not doing anything against Al Qaeda outside of Afghanistan. He looks at me and says, well, you're the chief of ops, so fix it. I go, okay. Mm. Went home. And this is a true story. Um, that This was on a Friday. Saturday, my youngest son had a football game right across the street from St. Leo, which was the church that we went to. So I, I dropped my, my youngest son off at the game, and I walked over to the church. And I knelt down to the front, and I said, I have some ideas. Uh, I hope you like them. And to tell you the <laughs> truth. If, if they're wrong, hit me with a lightning bolt when I come out, because I don't want to bring down anything that is not what, what you want. Mm-hmm. So the program that I came up with and, and Kofor bought off on it, the DCI bought off it. And I even briefed uh, Dick Cheney and Condoleezza Rice on, on this particular program was from the realization and the frustrations that you so well described, uh, you know, pre 9-11, the fact that we knew something was going on and we couldn't do anything about it. Part of the ethos of, of, of CTC is to disrupt, to prevent. And we did not have that capability. So what I came up with was with, with a proposal for a program where we would get X number of names of people that we know are bad people in bad organizations, Hezbollah, Hamas, Al-Qaeda, Taliban, whatever it is, narco-traffickers. We were even open to, to, to those because that's another scourge. So... Um, with the, the concept being that you now put full surveillance on these folks. You, we call it making book on somebody. Patterns of life is a, is a more uh, correct or polite term. But we make book on them. We know where they go, what cars they drive. You know, uh, we, in some cases, we could even make them. We made the keys to cars that we, we, we needed to get into. Um, and then when we started getting this kind of chatter, whether it's from Hamas or Al-Qaeda or whoever, that we would have three targets per organization that we could disrupt. Mm-hmm. Now, we're not talking about going over the, against the heads of organizations. They're too difficult to do. And the shooters in the bottom feeders, they're, they're a dime a dozen. You kill one, 12 cousins, join the, the cause. Mm-hmm. The support mechanism, the people that provide the money, the banking, the, 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 the transportation, the medical help, the training, those people have to have a person, they have to have an open persona. You cannot do that from a mountain in, in Afghanistan. And these were the people that I wanted to target. Known terrorists who were key people in the functioning of an organization. And what happens is this, if we get this kind of chatter with Hezbollah, let's say, and all of a sudden, three different Hezbollah guys in three different places get wrapped up either kidnapped, compromised, or lethal finding, legally, you, you know, we, we could have shot them. Um, what do you think that organization is going to do? They're going to put the brakes. 
Yeah. We've been infiltrated because it can't be a coincidence that three of our top guys in three different geographies uh, are, are, are all of a sudden missing. So they, they would panic. And it, that, that was the whole concept. Having not retaliation, not uh, it was strictly having a tool. And the way that I described it to, you know, Mr. Cheney and to our DCI at the time was, sir, we cannot build the firehouse when our house is already on fire. These are the things that we have to have in our toolbox to implement. And you cannot come up with an operation to kidnap three Hamas or Hezbollah leaders uh, two days before they're supposed to do an action. Right. Um, we were very successful at the first part of, of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of the mission. Uh, when I started briefing uh, on the specifics, the fact that we actually had a, a division chief that had come to us and he goes, here's the target that I really believe we need to go after. It was, it was a, the most legitimate target we would have had. It would have been a first, a good first scout. And, but you know, now it was about a year and a half after 9-11 and the calcium from that backbone had melted mm. and politics were, were ripe. And the decision was made that, and I'll never forget the quote from our then DDO. Um, There's no doubt in my mind, Mr. Director, that Prado can not only Prado and his team can not only do this, but they can get away with it. I'm going like, yes, yeah, let's go. We are getting a green light. And two seconds later, he says, however, Mr. Director, we need to consider the political ramifications of this action. The division chief, who was an SIS five, doesn't get any higher than that, got up, adjusted his suit because he was a very dapper guy, closed his notebook, walked out. Shortly thereafter, he retired. So for me, it was a realization that as good as we had been, as successful as we had been, and I had pick of the litter. Mm. I had pick of the litter. I had the best of the best of the agency was given to me for this program initially. And these are people that needed to have careers. If we were being, if we were being utilized, none of these guys would have complained. But three of my guys ended up being SIS fours and fives by the time they retired last year. Mm. So I had, you know, really so a good crowd. So I went down to Jose Rodriguez, who was then uh, a very dear friend of mine from way back. Uh, he, he had taken over for Kofer, and I told him what had happened. And I said, boss, I can't keep my guys repelling upside down, popping grenades for the rest of their careers for a paper tiger that is never going to be let loose. So uh, that's when we decided to, uh, to shut the program down. And shortly thereafter, I was disillusioned anyway. I, I wanted to end on a high. I had spent the last two and a half years on the ground with some of the finest people I've ever worked with doing some incredible stuff under the noses of some incredible uh, people that were watching, let's put it that way, uh, and never compromised ourselves. So I was very proud to, you know, I wanted to end my career on that high note, not go back as a, you know, division chief or deputy division chief somewhere and, and, and push more papers back and forth. Yeah, it would have been a nicer, cleaner ending. But to use a sports analogy, it's like, you know, you can't always end your career by hitting a walk-off Grand Slam in, in the World Series. Like, that's just not something like most people. If you're a fighter, you typically go out on your face in a pool of your own blood and spit and you're embarrassed, right? That's just kind of how it goes for a lot of people. But you said something at the beginning of that before you got into everything. And I'm not going to let you off the hook, all right? You said you're not political. You're just an intelligence guy. You don't want to name names. I'm going to name names if you're not going to, because I want to talk about the United States and how we're viewed on the international stage. 
Because when you're viewed as a paper tiger, people will attack. So we see the situation that happened in Afghanistan, and you saw the absolute debacle, the unforced error that was created by Joe Biden and the administration and the military, or whoever you want to blame, pulling our troops out of Afghanistan, giving up Bagram, an absolute mess. And it's a mess that we will be looking back on down the road, maybe decades from now. Hey, remember when we gave up Bagram? Remember when we let this this vacuum uh, be controlled now by Taliban and other people like that? Also, the Ukraine situation. Say what you want about Donald Trump. Everyone thought, oh, he's a Russian cat's paw. And yet, you know, Putin basically sat on his hands for four years because he was scared of the orange man, just like a lot of other people on Twitter are. That's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about when you're seeing this now that you're retired, you're, you're just a civilian, right? I say just a civilian. What do you think about how we are viewed on the international stage? Because the situation with Afghanistan, how we're responding to Ukraine, that's going to affect how China deals with Taiwan and China deals with everybody. That's going to affect how North Korea does things. It's going to, you know, Iran in Venezuela, pick, pick a country that doesn't like us or doesn't do the, the way that the things the way that we want to do them. Talk me through how we can how we can fathom where we're at right now as a country and maybe how we can turn it around. Well, you know, you're, you're, you're spot on. Uh, there's, there's no arguing that, you know, we are dealing with predators and the same way. That's why I use the Jimmy Carter uh, uh, analogy, the same way he could not resolve the hostage situation in Iran. And before Reagan's hand went down from swearing in, our guys were released yeah. Um, the same thing happened with with uh, Ukraine. And, you know, as, as a guy who fought terrorism, I mean, sorry, communism in five different incarnations professionally. Um, what amazes me is that we are surprised that Putin did what he did. He yeah. already done Just it shocked. and everything else. He said it the day he took over power, he said, I will reconstitute the Soviet Union to its right. glory. Well, and Rick, it just uh, cut in real quick, uh, keep your, your train of thought because this is astonishing to me. All of the quote unquote experts, all the, the people that were advising people and talking to people at CNN and the New York Times and wherever else said, Putin's not crazy enough to invade Ukraine. He's not going to go hot in Ukraine. Are you insane? Those were the smart people. And now they're sitting here, their entire world's been turned upside down. But but yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, it's, it's funny because one question that has been asked of me uh, a couple of times earlier on, was um, is is the nuclear threat real? And I said yes from the Russian side. And they went, "What do you mean?" He says, "Well, do you think that we have the credibility if we don't have the guts to finish Afghanistan and 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 we show our allies what happens when you work with us uh, that we eventually will leave you over the barrel?" Um, you know, it, it is incumbent on us to 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 do look at things differently. Absolutely. When they look at weak leadership and mm -hmm. not just the United States, because let's face it, look at Germany. Germany now, just yesterday, decided, OK, yeah, we were lying. We, 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 we our, our stores were not empty. We're going to give them tanks and guns and all this other stuff. Yeah. And then they're next door neighbors to what's going on. So th th there's no policeman. You know, there's there's nothing out there to keep a guy like Putin from striking. And I go back to my mantra. You cannot judge your opponent's morality by our optic. We would not start a nuclear war. Right. We would not invade a, a you know, Mexico or, or Canada or whatever. You know, and with that argument, why don't we go after Cuba? Right. Because Putin's uh, argument is Ukraine is a NATO inclined 
entity in my backyard. Well, Cuba is a Russian controlled entity 90 miles from my house. Yeah. So um, absolutely. Who's in power makes a difference. Um, the, the fact that in, an individual can come across and this, this is very apropos, even in my, in my field as, as an operations officer, you know, when, when I had to sit down with a terrorist and, you know, there's a story there where I recruit a terrorist or working with some really rough characters from, from the local, you know, law enforcement and investigative is they're rough people, but they yeah. got to look at you and, and they got to see you and go, okay, this guy is serious also. Mm-hmm. Well, the same goes for our presidents. The same thing goes for our Congress. The same thing goes for our military leaders. Our military leaders have been pretty wishy-washy of late. And, and, and I don't appreciate that because we are supposed to be apolitical. We should not be playing that game uh, as the agencies. But absolutely. And, and it's what I tell people in my neighborhood because, you know, they, they all know my background. And when there's a little petty crime or something, they oh, well, what should we do? I say, just look at my house. Because my job is to make the thief or the criminal go to your house. Yeah. I have a fence. I have two dogs. I have lights, you know, and I have my posture that when I walk out of my house, I'm not food. Mm-hmm. That applies. That's, that's the micro. Well, the macro is the same. When people see the United States and our allies, lightweight, unprepared, uh, unwilling to show that we are not going to be messed with, They'll take care. They'll, they'll take advantage of us. When it goes back to Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman's, you know, the wolf's the sheep and the sheepdog. And it's just like the sheepdog doesn't have to be aggressive until he has to be aggressive. But if the sheepdog just rolls over on his back, you know, every time the wolf shows up, the wolf's just going to keep coming and there will be no more sheep. And so I, I think that's a very important thing for us to look at. Another thing that, that kind of came to mind as you were describing that as Americans, right, as lazy, fat, stupid Americans, we can't fathom country pride. Like what some people are doing, like we can't fathom how hundreds of thousands of free people that have Ukrainian ties have gone back to Ukraine in order to fight for them right now. We can't fathom that. It's like, wait, you were living, you're a professional boxer and you're living in a mansion in America and you're you're going back to, to fight to, to protect your homeland because there was a recent poll and I'm going I'm to mess up the numbers, but an overwhelming amount of Americans of both parties, but really a whole lot of Democrats said, if we were attacked in some way that they would not fight to save this country. Now, if they come to my neck of the woods, they're going to have a hell of a time with me and my friends. I can just tell you that much. And that's not posturing. That's just reality. But um, I really like that you described that. But as with our, our limited time that we have left, there's a couple of random things I wanted to kind of talk through and get your opinions on because they came from the book, but you didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about them. So I wanted to kind of get your, your overall impressions. You mentioned a few times in the book about sleeper cells in the U.S., Right. And how there there have been sleeper cells and how we've maybe with some uh, unique immigration things have created some sleeper cells. But when I read those sections of that book, I automatically was like, I went to code orange, right? I'm like, oh, I need to be looking around. And you talk about the codes in the book and all that as well. But that is astonishing and frightening to me as a free American, you know, uh, Second Amendment loving American, prideful, patriotic American, that right now in the United States, our intelligence agencies know that there are terrorist sleeper cells and they're just letting them operate. They're letting them breathe air and buy food and go to groceries and go to their fake job and, and hang out with their fake wife and fake kids and walk their, their dog that's not technically theirs. 
And it feels like the UBL thing all over again, but maybe in a, in a minor degree. Help me understand that because I know I'm dumb. I know this isn't my, my way of thinking about things. How is it possible that we know about sleeper cells in America and we're just kind of letting them chill? Is it because they, we want their bosses and we're willing to let them you know, do a couple of skirmishes here or there? Help me. There's two stories in the book that that that, that show what you're talking about, and and the the, um, the 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 fastest one to go into was the um, when I was meeting right after 9/11 with my FBI counterpart, a very good friend of mine from years, and when we told him that it was Bin Laden who had done the hit, uh, he said, uh, "Thank God," and I went, "What are you talking about, Mike? What do you mean, thank God?" He goes, "If he had been, if he had been Hezbollah." And we went after Iran, they would bleed us in this country. I was indignant. I said, I'm the chief of operations at CIA's counterterrorist center. Yeah. This is the first time I hear about this. I know that I don't operate in the States, but these guys are coming from Oconus and that they're here. So that was a reality in places like Detroit and places like that. They are some very active, dormant. And, you know, we do have a legal system. We can just not go and grab somebody and start waterboarding them um, uh, for, to, to, to get them to confess that they're indeed part of Hezbollah or Hamas or whatever the crap. Uh, it, we, we can't do that. So they're dormant. They're, they're smart enough to know that if they, you know, they can only activate when the time is right and when they're directed to do so. But I, but I take your point. The second one was even creepier because the, uh, the, the one that I want to refer to was I neutralized a North Korean agent and that's, they were, they allowed me to say, I actually did two, but they only let me talk about one in the book. Yeah. Uh, and this guy um, was recruiting Latin Americans and infiltrating him to infiltrating them to America and others from Canada, mm-hmm. infiltrating him to the United States. Now, not so much for terrorism, but primarily because as you know, they're embargoed about everything. So technology, if now you live in the United States, you could go to the Apple store and buy a, a three Apple computers. Nobody's going to blink an eye. Mm-hmm. Now you smuggle them in and they, they go to, to, uh, to North Korea. Uh, so we, I compromised this guy. We took him down and um, we worked with the FBI on because, you know, we, we knew had people inside. Um, we're foolish to think that we that we there are not no cells inside of our, of our country. We we have no borders to speak of to begin with. Hmm. Um, we there isn't a week that I don't hear. Oh, they caught some Iranian guy, or they caught some you know this guy, or this major narco traffickers. Um, you know, not not all the people coming across that border are benign family people trying to find a better way of life. And even those need to be documented. But yes, indeed, we, we uh, you know, we, uh, they're, they're bad guys here. Um, you have guys like Emil Kanzi, who um, in front of my agency uh, killed two of our people right there. He shot several, but he, he killed two. And this guy was just a very angry pa- uh, Pakistani. Um, he, you know, he, he went that radical flip and he's here and he had an AK-47 uh, but who knows? We don't know that he wasn't said here before. I, I guess, Rick, the thing for me is, and I was jotting this down as you were saying that there's the evil we know, and then there's, there's, there's the evil we don't. The, the world can kind of deal with the evil that we don't know. The person that just literally loses it one day, 
you know, and I say deals with it, but like they lose it one day and they kill a couple of people and then kill themselves. It's like, man, we didn't, no one saw that one coming. Everybody in the community, the pastor at the church, his wife and kids, nobody knew that was coming. Right. But then the evil that we do know that that's, that's somewhat unforgivable because that's the thing. Like when a kid has tons of uh, issues at home and is violent and kills animals and all that. And then all of a sudden he goes up and he shoots up a school. It's like, we had all these warning signs. How can we not keep our community safe? And it's because we're a place of law and this is a minority report. We can't arrest you for future crime, right? Stuff that you've not committed, but it does make it a, a little bit disheartening and a little bit exasperating for a guy like me to think like those types of things are happening, but I, I at least do understand it. And you brought something else up there that I wanted to talk about because, you know, you, you just mentioned it about the Southern border border. Essentially we don't have one. Um, and I, my Senator here in the state of Oklahoma, um, we, he talked about, this is James Langford. He talked about here recently that in the last calendar year, we have stopped at our border people that we know of people from every single country in the world, to include our enemies, China and North Korea and Iran and everybody that hates us. We have people just going to Mexico or somewhere in Central and South America, making their way up and coming into our country. And we basically say, we basically usher them in. We, we are, we've basically hamstrung our border patrol uh, by, by dictates a lot of the stuff about the, the Joe Biden administration. Title 42 is about to come off and we're, we're about to see this crazy summer a mass migration, illegal migration here. And everyone likes to say, oh, aren't you a country of immigrants? You're being racist. You're being whatever. You just hate brown people. It's like, no, whenever my family came over here from Ireland, like there wasn't immigration law like there is today. Like, is it that big of a deal to come in through the front door like your family did? That type of thing. But talk to me about that just from an intelligence standpoint, but also from a national security standpoint about our southern border, because a lot of people feel like they're just screaming at the sky because I don't not want them here because I, I I don't like people that speak Spanish like that. That's crazy. I, I don't want them here now because they didn't come through the front door. I don't know who these people are. We don't know who they are. Does that make sense? It does. And let me tell you, I, I personally believe that there are greater forces behind these things than just these people coming out. Um, I, I know a little bit about operational disturbances in, in enemy countries and the things that you could do to foment, you know, uh, some problems. But imagine the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians supporting with corrupt governments, send your people to the United States, sneak these people in. Um, it, I think that there's a strategic effort here. This isn't just a mass exodus. This is a mass exodus that is the result of pushing that exodus so they can overwhelm us. The other thing that that also creates, which is a problem that a lot of people don't focus on the southern border. The problem with it is that it is causing a division in our country. We are drawing lines left from right, white from black. You know, I'm not used to that. You know, yeah. the, that, that to me, this is the United States of America. And, and if you, you behave as Americans, you'll be treated as Americans. Right. But it, it is... It is so perfect that I, if, if I was the bad guys, I would have been loved to have been the guy that came up with that idea of, hey, let's foment all these people, make them really agile, pay some of the coyotes off, send, start sending the guys in. In three years, we're going to have hundreds of thousands of people coming in. I would have been promoted to five-star general. Yeah. I, it's just disheartening to hear that because there's nothing we can do about it, but we can see it. It's like, it's like somebody 
burning your house down, but all you have to do is watch. And so I do hate that we're, we're in this area where it seems like we're, we're splitting as a country. No, I don't think we're on the brink of civil war, but yes, left is splitting from right. Red state is splitting from blue state. And, and one of the things is I hate talking about groups of people uh, as groups of people like the gay community or the black community or all that. I look at everyone as an individual. They're all created individually in the image of God. Like let's not take their, their lowest common denominator, which is their immutable characteristics and judge them as that. So I say all that to set up a very judgmental question. Latinos as a voting block seem to be making a lot of changes in terms of how they're viewing the modern electorate and specifically the modern democratic party. Now, what we've always been told is that Cuban Americans, especially the ones that live in Florida, they could give a damn about the Democrats and all their their stuff and moving towards socialism and the woke stuff because they know like you do and like your family did what that leads to. They know what type of re- they know what a revolution smells like, much less reading about it in a book. But talk to me a little bit about how Latino Americans of a, a bunch of different backgrounds and persuasions, uh, how they're kind of moving towards the right side of the aisle, moving towards the Republican Party, because Aside from Trump and doing a few things here or there, the Republicans aren't necessarily attracting them to their side. They're just being repelled by the Democratic side. Or am I crazy? Am I wrong? You know, you just tell me what you want to say about it. You're spot on. And what you're seeing is not everybody is as insane as they're made out to be. You know, the people coming across that border is forcing the people that have come here before and that are now established to realize that you cannot continue this before it's everybody's downfall. And go back to what we, we talk, talked about very early on. Those people know the difference between living in Mexico and living in the United States. Right. Or in Guatemala or Venezuela or Cuba. So those people that come to this country legally or the ones that eventually become legal, they're seeing the writing on the wall. Right. But they're smart enough to vote against it. You know, there, there's a, I have friends in Colorado. I used to work out there with the 10th Special Forces guys. And I, I was amazed at how many cars had stickers on them that said, don't California, my Colorado. Right. Because I don't care that you leave, but if you leave a place because it was a mess the way you voted, how are you going to vote the same way now when you come to Florida, when you come to Texas right. or something else? So I think that that's what we're seeing is it's an awakening, not a woking. Um, well, that's all, you know, yeah, that sticks in my craw too. this, you know, what? Tenth of one percent driving the, the the train here, but you know the the these these people are awake to the fact that they could lose what they've gained in their three five ten years and revert back to the poverty that they were in in Honduras, Peru, you know Nicaragua, and all these other places. I absolutely agree with that. And one thing I, w- I was jotting down when you were talking about you know don't. Don't California, my Colorado, don't California, my Texas. This is my concern. So if you look at Zillow or any of these other places that pay attention to these things, these mass exodus that we've seen from New York, New Jersey, Illinois, uh, California, people moving to Texas, Florida, Tennessee, Idaho, South Dakota, all these different things. Most people vote with their hearts and not their heads. I know I'm painting with a broad brush here, but I think that's pretty accurate that a majority of people vote with their hearts. So you're a Californian and you, you're you leaving, you're, you're a refugee from California because of the taxation, because of some of the woke stuff in the public schools, whatever your situation is. And you move down to you know Irving, Texas or something like that. But when you get to Texas, you love the, the, the relaxed taxation. You love the government not telling you exactly what to do. But then a presidential election rolls around and now you're voting about abortion 
because you think a woman should have a right to choose whether or not to kill the baby inside of her womb. You're, you're talking about illegal immigration. And well, I have a lot of people that are brown that are my friends. I don't want them to not be able to come here. Shouldn't we just be able to love them and take care of them and go down the list? It's all these emotionally attractive things that the Democratic Party basically keys in on. So that's my concern with these these red states, solidly red states, all of a sudden flipping blue at some point because these people aren't moving to rural Florida. They're moving to the major cities and they're moving to these blue spots in these otherwise red states. So. We obviously can't tell the future. Obviously, we got a few more election cycles to come before we can see if anything I'm saying is legitimate. But I do want to wrap up with this question here. And I really appreciate all the time that you've given us today to go into all these different areas. Obviously, you're a man of God. You described yourself as a man of God. You talk about it throughout the book. Uh, you talk about consulting God uh, whenever you're making these decisions and, and all that kind of stuff. Now, help me square being a spy or, or being, you know, a member of the, the United States government where you might be forced to use violence on somebody in order to protect somebody else. Because some people, whether they've read their Bibles or not, they think they they think that's not really a Christian thing to do. In your job, you may have had to stretch the truth or just straight up lie in order to save your life, save the lives of someone else, or to save a mission or something that you were doing. So I know my audience is going to be like, how can this guy be a Christ follower? How can this guy uh, be a Christian? How can this guy believe in God and also do all this shady, shadowy stuff? So give it to me. Tell me. It's real easy. You have to be doing it for the right reasons. First of all, the Bible does not say thou shalt not kill. It says thou shalt not murder. Right. Um, and you, we all have the right of self-defense. And my business is a right, a right of preventive self-defense. Okay. Um, I have no qualms whatsoever. I have never gone in harm's way that I haven't straightened things out with a man upstairs. This is what I do for a living. This is what I'm going to be doing. And I mean it. I, I honestly, to save my soul, I'd rather he hit me with a bolt of lightning when I walk out of this house if I'm going to go do something he doesn't want me to do. So uh, I, I think that it's, it's naive to think that you can fight an enemy from a different posture. Our enemy, go, going back to that, they want to kill us. They want to do us away. Can you imagine if the United States folded in any shape or form? Name me one country left in the world that could take our place and lead against the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians. Right. There is none. No. Um, so it, it is, the morality is based on the reasons what you're doing. I have stolen, that shall not steal. I have stolen secrets from all countries and all levels of generals and, and diplomats. But it wasn't so I could come home and invest in magnesium, because I know that now magnesium, whatever, I'm pulling something there. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not coming home to benefit financially from this. On the contrary, most of the stuff I did, I was, a you know, hand to mouth kind of GS12, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's why you do it. You do it because you believe in your country, but you believe that your country is one nation under God, indivisible. And when you take that, when you take that into consideration, your conscience is clear. I am not doing, I am not going to go attack that, that village because I want to kill people. No, I'm going to attack right. that village because they're attacking the civilians in, in Nicaragua. And I'm, so, I'm watching those mothers come in with dead babies that get caught in a firefight with, with the Sandinistas. So the morality is based on the end result. 
And it isn't the, the, the end justifies the means kind of thing. It's just having a purpose. And then those decisions that you make with those, as long as within the parameters of that purpose, I believe they're, they're, they're legitimate. Yeah, I think um, obviously there's a much longer discussion that could be had about the, the theology of all that and everything, but certainly it makes sense uh, as why you would say that. And it, it reminds me of a quote that you had from the book where you were quoting George Orwell. And I can't remember if this was uh, in 1984, Animal Farm or what, but it's, we sleep, we sleep safely in our beds because rough men stand ready in the night to visit violence on those who would do us harm. And so that that's one of the ways that you can kind of get through with your way of thinking in terms of, of everything and how you were able to do your job over such a legendary career. But Rick, we've touched on a lot of different things here and believe it or not, guys, even an hour and a half long chat, we, we left a whole lot of stuff on the cutting room floor in terms of what we could have talked about in the book, but I really, really appreciate you uh, chatting with us. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, I just thank you very much for having me. And, and the only thing that I will say is that I wrote the book for the right reasons. And, and what brought it to mind was why do you do something? I can look in the mirror and know that I wrote the book because I believe that my agency, my colleagues, and the average American needs to take off the rose-colored glasses Mm -hmm. and see what the agency really is supposed to do and is capable of doing it, and so with our military. So Right. It's a unique read, and I really appreciate you and your team sending it my way. Rick Prado, thank you for coming on on Daunted Life of Man's podcast. Thank you very much. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Rick Prado. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got two links for you today. I've got a link to the book, Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior, and also a link to Rick's website. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.